The uber-wealthy are using intelligence structure to run governments, to run policy institutes, to run uh, non-governmental organizations. Almost every single person who got on Epstein's plane was somehow recruited by the CIA and being managed by Epstein. What Epstein was, was not just a child molester. He was definitely a child molester but he was not only a child molester. He did very important job. Getting to the point where you want to do journalism is getting to the point where you want to learn the truth. And you've got to learn the truth about yourself. And then you've got to learn the truth about those around you. Then you've got to learn everything. You realise the only answer to it is find all of the answers, is to look at everything properly, to really, really put your heart out and say, OK, I know who... I think I am. Let's see what the rest of the world looks like. All of these adventures lead you to the other side, lead you to do something that you need to do. Welcome to the Staying Free Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Johnny Vedmore. Johnny is an independent investigative journalist based in Cardiff, and his work shines a light on the dark histories of all kinds of influential and powerful figures in the world, both current and in the past. So I didn't know much about Johnny before having this conversation. I just knew that he was definitely becoming a household name in the freedom community. But we ended up having a great conversation that not only covered some of the areas that I knew Johnny was involved in, but we also went into a few different and definitely more personal areas as well. So I really appreciate Johnny for being willing to talk about those things and for definitely keeping it real during this conversation. If you enjoy the episode, please make sure you give it a like and a share on social media. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, do give it a five-star rating in whichever podcast app you're using. If you're new here, then welcome. Give the pod a subscribe for future episodes. And if you haven't joined the Telegram group already, you can do that at t.me slash staying There's a bunch of ways that you can help support my work. They're all in the description below. All of your support is hugely appreciated. And of course, we'll go directly towards the costs of running the show. All right, on to the episode. First of all, welcome to the welcome to the podcast, Johnny Vedmore. It's good to finally uh, get the chance to speak. I've heard a, heard a lot about you, so um, yeah, welcome. Rocking. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so you know, like I was just saying to you before we hit record, uh, I've heard your name around a lot, and I know the, I know some of the work you've done and some of the kind of themes that you've been talking about in your in your journalism. So I have a bit of an idea about uh, about who you are and what you do. Um, but I haven't heard like any, you know, interviews or anything like that. I haven't actually read any of your work. So I'm kind of coming into this, in, coming into this fresh. And I, you know, I want to know more about you because I know that you are quite a big figure in the freedom movement and quite a big figure when it comes to kind of like alternative journalism and stuff. Um, so first of all, just for my listening audience, would you mind just giving a primer as to, you know, just your, your background and kind of, you know, where you come from, et cetera? Yeah, um, uh, thank you for having me on, man. Uh, thank you for all your audience for paying attention and having a listen. Um, uh, basically, I'm a journalist now, but I wasn't always. Uh, I was brought up with a steelworking dad um, and a, a traffic warden mum uh, in Cardiff, and we were not very well off. Um, and eventually, I worked in hotels for years. Um, and uh, about 2015, I had like a bit of a breakdown, meltdown, my brain. I was like, it was either suicide or do everything that I've been promising myself I would do for all of my life. And uh, I chose to do everything, but only after like a bit of a experience with psychedelics, sort of like 
self self help counseling <laughs> of uh, magic mushrooms in a sense um, to come out of a, uh, the other side with resolve to leave behind all of the different antidepressants I was on, all of the different uh, pharmaceuticals I was taking to relieve the many uh, b- the the pain I had inside me from uh, years of abuse as a child um, and from uh, gr- being groomed by a pedophile when I was like between nine and eleven, then going through a process uh, where where basically I, uh, I I I went to the police and then the, he was let back out and I was allowed to hang around me straight afterwards. So I didn't trust authority. I had a really big problem with authority. I was obviously through my. I also suffered from something called Graves' disease, so I was ill all the time. And it, it led me to this point where I was like, okay, where am I? Who am I? What am I? And what is this world? And I really went like internally, intru- uh, like l- looked inside myself and came out as a journalist, the other side of it. I decided there was loads of things I'd already been researching for years and years. And it was probably about 2016 where I wrote my first proper articles about Laura Koonsberg, who was then uh, made political ed- editor of the BBC, and then Theresa May's father and how her father, um, uh, how he worked with a serial killer called john bodkin adams who killed over 130 women and had them like sign into his will that article went crazy it was completely like released independently and that article i released it just before uh the election between corbyn and and may um and quarter of a million people read it almost quarter of a million within a week um and that was just like going from somewhere nowhere to somewhere all of a sudden i realized one of my uh, interests, of course, is family histories, but not only family histories, finding out the things no one else is reporting. We've got a whole mainstream media. And once you get into being a journalist and you start looking around, you're looking at sources and you start looking into sources and you start understanding, oh, right, most of the sources that I know are all of these people who are telling me information without giving me sources. And then if you actually go and look underneath at where they should be looking for their sources, you find often a different story than the narrative that's being played out to you. So I... I am a person who's now gone on a journey as as really a, a, a special uh, adventure, I'd say. I went from working in a two-star hotel, writing articles behind the desk, uh, working very hard to COVID hitting and going and moving to Chile and starting uh, writing for Unlimited Hangout uh, with Whitney Webb, um, then helping uh, with the research for volume uh, two of One Nation Under Blackmail, which is about Jeffrey Epstein is intelligence links i threw myself into certain articles uh certain areas that no one else was going one is family history so revealing like for instance uh people had gone back to uh joseph stanton gates uh who um is one of bill gates ancestors you got william gates the third the guy we got now bill gates you got william gates the second william gates the first and joseph stanton gates and people hadn't gone behind beyond that that's the type of thing i do i say okay if no one's gone beyond that why have they not gone beyond that and i went back all the way to the 1300s and discovered a long line of sir jeffrey gates the first sir jeffrey gates the second and sir jeffrey gates the third who's very important him and his brother sir john gates actually are the ones who have their head chopped off by bloody queen mary on the first day they they're very important in king henry the eighth's um council uh so much so that sir john gates is the one who who helps as a pallbearer for henry the eighth's coffin when he dies and on they try and put Jane Seymour on the throne instead of 
letting Bloody Queen Mary on, and boom, you have uh, Bloody Queen Mary taking the throne and t- cutting off the Gates' head. And those are direct ancestors, direct ancestors of Bill Gates. Also, Sir Jeffrey Gates is direct answer, uh, ancestor of Truman and uh, and um, George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush. So these sort of facts are left out that, you know, Bill Gates is a, a distant relative of the Bushes or Harry Truman or things like this. You know, these are really interesting things. Why can't we talk about these things? And uh, that led me um, to really my seminal pieces, which were looking at Klaus Schwab. Nothing was about his, there was nothing about his ancestry when I started looking into him. It was a lot of rumors, a lot of wrong rumors, and a lot of, you know, really just propaganda against him, of course, but no truth. And I was given six weeks to go and and discover who was Klaus Schwab's father. And eventually, and I didn't only do it, but a whole story unraveled that was fantastic. And that led on to a Schwab series, led on to a load of other. I mean, I've been um, now deep within uh, areas where nobody else is. I can take a year to write an article. Uh, The articles I'm writing next year, I got like about 15 articles that are mapped out. No one else is going to get there first. No one else is going to get there because no one else is. I, I'm not saying like, oh, I'm the only one doing it. No one else does what I do in style. I go underneath. I look for the things that no one else has found. And I kind of follow down lines. It takes a, a, a certain amount of practice to understand what you should and shouldn't look at. But that's my journalism. And most recently, I've set up a site called Newspaste com and newspaste.com is my home it's where a lot of my videos are. i present the newspaste podcast i present news pasty which is a bit of a funny show i present Newshound, where i delve for hours through the archives newspaper archives to look at the sources and other archives to look at the sources for where the articles i write come from and just other uh matters of fact and i also i'm a police auditor so i i regularly audit the police which means i get um, a, a camera out and i film the police in public and then uh, interactions usually ensue um and and uh i'm i know all of the laws that the police are governed by and so i make sure that they are uh keeping to those laws and that is me at the moment it's a complicated person um i i've had a really complicated few years especially and i threw myself into this um and so uh I only know, I can only say, I only know what I know. Uh, if you ask me questions outside my realm of knowledge, I'll always say I don't know, and there's loads I don't know. But about the subjects I do know, I'm, I, I have dragnetted the, every bit of information available. I've collated it, sourced it, stuck it into long-form articles. My articles are often 7,500 words plus and are full of sources. I mean full of sources. So you can go in there and you can delve around yourself because that's what I want to present. I want to present the truth, fact. I don't want to present my opinion. You'll really hear I in any of my articles. You'll really hear I. Because it's like a lot of this is looking at history and looking at how history is, but through a perspective of information rather than what you're told by a repeater. Okay, so yeah, that's a really good um, that's a really good primer. Then that you know gives a, a lot of threads for me to pull on here. But I, I really want to get into into the how of, of the journalism. But bef- before I do that, first of all, I just want to understand the why. Why did you start doing this stuff? What was it that drew you to, you know, it seems like it's kind of very much looking into people and kind of 
you know, doing a lot of digging on people and finding out, you know, what they're about and what their history is and everything kind of makes them who they are. And in particular, kind of, I guess, quite dark characters. So what would, what would draw you to that kind of thing? Um, when you're, when you're in trauma, when your life has been just like, a, a selection of traumatic events, you often need to go on a really long journey to get to the end, to get to the point where you can heal yourself and you can see yourself. And to see yourself, we at first is almost impossible. You go on a journey where you look at others. And as you go on that journey of looking on others, you discover more about yourself as you go along. You more you understand your journey much more in uh, respect to somebody else's journey. Um, and you become stronger and stronger as a, a mentally and in the real world for those around you. Um, so I think that as soon as I realized there's, there was something really, I had a really big problem, um, such a large amount of anxiety. I had been like within, I, I mean, my family unit was both loving and violent, you know. Um, there was so much violence all around. My dad used to drink a hell of a lot. He was a big guy, Kashinkai Karate, beat the hell out of my sisters and then they'd beat the hell out of me and they were like four and six years old so I had no chance of defending myself it was it was like just terrible stuff and I was going on kind of a journey where I'm trying to find myself and I discovered that there was loads of questions that I needed answering that I couldn't even pose I couldn't even type into an internet search engine eventually when we've got that technology and you can find uh, an answer to a lot of your innermost questions at least through the prism of what somebody else, uh, someone else's perspective, um, indeed. But as long as you know that, you know how it, it, it can affect you. Even then, I couldn't ask some questions. And I discovered this was in loads of different parts of my life. There was things I wanted to look up on the internet, and there was things I didn't want to look up on the internet. And I couldn't understand that. And it bothered me for ages, because sometimes it was like, why don't I want to know this thing that I really want to know? So I had to come over a battle. And I think I'm not the only one. You know, I'm, I, I, I've never had a conversation with someone where someone says, oh, I have that too, or I've had that too. But I think everybody has it to some sort of degree, this point when they have to accept they don't know everything. The moment that they have to realize that as soon as they're asking for help with a question, you're letting down one of your biggest barriers. And when you've been living within trauma, you build up loads of barriers that are really important for you moving forward. And if you start pulling those down, your whole life can tumble around you really quickly. And that happened to me on many occasions. My life tumbled around me. Uh, on many occasions uh, because I wasn't asking the right questions. I wasn't, I wasn't looking to solve myself. I was looking to blame others because that's what you do when you're on a journey like that. Um, and you've got to heal yourself. So I went through a, a, a journey of addiction. I think I, I can say I was a drug addict um, uh, and it was a painful experience. It's one that, that now, I mean, uh, the thought of, of like being at the lowest point makes me fill up with tears you know it makes me makes me sad it makes me never want to return there and that sort of journey when you're churning along and you you realize the only answer to it is find all of the answers is to look at everything properly to really really put your heart out and say okay i know who i think i am let's see what the rest of the world looks like and nearly all of the time at first, I was so angry. If I wrote anything, it was all personal and it was from within me. 
Then after a while, something changed. And this is where it became what it is now. And it was this simple thing. No, no, not only could I ask any question, I had come to resolve. Past 2015, I had that this like massive experience where I was right down at the bottom. I'd just come off some really terrible medication. I'd been doing a job I loved. I worked with autistic kids, uh, really challenging ones. And, uh, and it was just like darkest moment of my life darkest moment i had to go i uh there's been loads of dark moments but that was horrible and i wanted to kind of like get back up and the only way was to answer everything have answers for everything and so when you look at everything, you start getting answers. And after a while, you build principles up on fact, not on fiction. You start to see through the other stuff and you start then to look at your own. You know, I was a, a, a labor supporting socialist, uh, someone who believed in things like, you know, in, in the Labour Party movement and things like that. Uh, when I was young, I was brought up with a father who marched next to Arthur Scargill and stuff, you know, who was a steel worker. I, I, my, my granddad was in a, like, run the roughest pub in Cardiff. I mean the roughest pub, the Dusty Forge. You don't mess around in Ely. You don't mess around proper rough. I mean, people who know what rough looks like in Britain back in the 50s and 60s will know what I mean. You know, people who are older in Cardiff today, I mentioned what my granddad did, and his instant respect, they were like, whoa! Oh, that's like you know my 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 dad would my, and my granddad was such down to earth people and they were just with the people in, in in so many ways um they were also so over the top and so eccentric and i had that in me as well and i i think i think it's a battle like getting to the point where you want to do journalism is a getting to the point where you want to learn the truth and you've got to learn the truth about yourself and then you've got to learn the truth about those around you then you've got to learn everything once you know enough that you don't once you can look at yourself enough that you can say i i i forgive myself for all of the different things and i i can get over this and i can be stronger and become a stronger person nothing scares you anymore nothing zero and zero questions i cannot type into the computer i can find anything look for anything see anything i can go out and look for it because i've had the experience where i've had that for first to become uh better in my own character for the fact that i was just so sad so sad yeah. abuse does that to you it get you get to the point where uh, honestly um uh, at some point my journalism became a mixture of investigating people who have covered up child abuse and that was obviously like the that only happened because i wrote a letter to myself and uh it was Sorry, yeah, yeah. I, I, um, fuck, man. Darkest moments, like <sighs> I wrote a letter to the kid who was being groomed by a paedophile in a room when he was like nine years old, <sighs> and uh, kind of like let it go, let it go, you know, and uh, and that allowed me. That allowed me something special. That allowed me to, uh, oh, fuck. That allowed me to, uh, be myself. And I'd been desperate to be myself for years. Desperate. So, 
that's where I, I I got led to. I didn't expect this to be so emotional, to be honest. That's all right. Uh, that's bus, all right. And, uh, thanks for and, being so uh, open about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I I I've talked about my uh, issues a lot, but when I'm not expecting it, and it can tap into you. So I've I've talked about um my past. Uh, I, I did especially long show um on what happened to me when I was young on Tessalena. Um, on the second show I was on with her and. You know, I I barely I barely cried at all. I, I you know I had that that sort of like I've been through all of that pain. I've been through all of that, um, and I was expecting it. But to be honest, I wasn't expecting to uh to maybe tell you the journey and how deep it was because that's how deep it was. Um, to yeah. get to the truth, to get to the truth, you've got to find the truth in yourself. You've got to look mm -hmm. at yourself and you've got to believe. Like when you look in the mirror, you gotta believe who you are. Otherwise, you're just gonna end up um, a bundle of opinions, who like opinionated. So you can't do journalism when you're opinionated. You can. Um, a lot of my uh, articles, what I learned to do was use all of that like ability to then control my own emotional output to be able to spend two days being really emotional about the subject I'm studying and then have basically zero emotion afterwards. So so right. I could just like kind of like look at the subject and be like, these are people interacting. They're just like, you know, basically fairy tale people. All I have to do is put all of the information, grab all of their information in life and put it in chronological order. And what I get from the end of it is the truth. Uh, or at least as close to the truth as I can yeah. get with the evidence provided. And all, all I can then do is like make sure every source is linked and all of it's in there and say, you know, this is the truth. And that that sort of process, you know, this is this is a process that I'm going through to make myself feel better about things in the past, make myself feel like I'm doing a good thing or a better person uh, being a better person. Um but it's also now it's got to a point where it's like I realized this is what I was looking for for years. I was looking for something to do that interests me. Um, and all of the rest of it, you know, I couldn't get there because I had so much pain. I just had yeah. so much pain. And so it was a letting go of the pain. Lots of people do it through loads of different ways. I went through uh, drug addiction and come out of it probably in 2000, like come out of drug addiction itself in about 2017, uh, 2018. Um, that was where I was on morphine. I started, I, I knew, I knew it was, uh, you know, I'd always been proud of taking drugs. Never lied. Never lied. If someone said, are you on drugs? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you know, I was always proud, but there was, I, I was going out with a girl uh, who I respected very much. And I lied to her one day about what, why I was so high and I was on morphine and I realized I like, I, I felt so bad. Um, I, I have this, if I, if, if I, if I tell like, even if it's a white lie to someone who I love, yeah. um, it built, just builds up and builds up until I have to say Same. it or I, I become a mess. Um, so, so I, I had to tell her, I got a, I, I lied to you and it wasn't even a, an important lie. It just, it, I think it bothered me more than her. Even uh, she was like, you know, cool with it. Cause she understand, she understood what I had been going through and what I'd gone through. And uh, all of these adventures lead you to the other side, lead you to yeah. doing something that you need to do. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, well, Johnny, like, you know, I ask this question to like most people. I, I always ask this question to people who come on because people that I 
that I interview on here, they're, they're normally kind of people who are just, they're, they're never ordinary people. They're never the kind of ordinary people you see on the street. People who I have, I have on this podcast, generally there's something quirky about them. Generally there's something different about them. And I always ask this question about, you know, what is it that kind of like drives you? What is it that got you to into doing this stuff? And most of the people give, give answers, but it's, you know, thank you for being so honest about, um, about yours, because obviously that one, you know, the answer that you've, you've given me really does, you know, obviously make a lot of sense in terms of how this has driven you to what you're doing and, and what, what makes you kind of so committed to the kind of work you're doing. Uh, but you know, it would have been very easy for you to kind of just, you know, um, I guess give, give me a very toned down answer on that because it's a very personal thing. So thanks for, um, you know, being so, so honest about it. And I think it's good as well. You know, it's healthy to, to, to kind of let that, uh, emotion out. I, I personally think that letting, letting emotion out like that, it kind of opens a little valve, uh, to some degree. Mm-hmm. So hopefully yeah, 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 yeah. that's been, you know, cathartic for you in some way as well. Um, but yeah, getting into the the next part of that, which is the the how on the journalism. Um, how how do you how do you do this? It seems like the kind of stuff that you're researching. Like I wouldn't know where to begin. I wouldn't know where to begin looking at family family lineages of Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab and all this kind of stuff. Like where where do you start doing that kind of research? Yeah, the, ba- the I mean, when you it, it, it split into a couple of different things, if you split into like. Uh, the, what you're talking about there the latter the the looking at their lineage looking at the the line of their ancestry um the rich and famous are terrible they always hide where they're from they nearly always do you know to some extent and like i i explained that with klaus schwab there was just no information with with bill gates it went back to joseph stanton gates you know with with uh theresa may her father's page was deleted from wikipedia which gave me the original thing of what's going on over here you know these if you start researching them you discover where there's been deletions or where there's been taken so so for instance like wikipedia is a really bad source and a really good source it's got the basic information yeah but most of it's gerrymandered and throttled by uh, a selection of administrators and wiki sort of creators and uh, other things who are doing loads of things behind the scenes and no one really understands uh when they're using wikipedia quite how it works what this sort of like system is out the back but if you go out the back and start going yeah you can go anyone can go and look at the wiki history you can look at the wiki history and you, you see a load of additions you also also see a load of things that get taken out so at first i was you know when i was looking for uh easy articles to do when i started this i would go through a wiki page of someone and i'd be looking for where um uh, a certain uh big lump of data has been taken out so uh, and then look at what that edit was and what got taken out sometimes it's just someone saying um theresa may's father is matthew mcconaughey or some crap like that and sometimes it's a really long uh piece so for instance um with wikipedia finding out what's deleted is the way you can find out where the issue was i found out on theresa may's page that her father was hubert brazier from a different deletion and then i went and looked to see if hubert brazier had ever had his own page by going to the internet archives putting in wikipedia and putting in his name with an underscore and boom there it was. It was an old page. And it gave me this tiny little bit of information about where he had worked in his diocese uh, in a little picture on the side. And that allowed me then to go through each of the years. And 
eventually i found that the uh that the church releases um all of the priests data and bios in a, some sort of clerical uh like um a phone book or address book or whatever every year for years i don't know if that still happens but it used to happen back in the day yep. the yellow pages and, and telephone books um and then i found him over and over in multiple versions of those so i was able to find out exactly where he was in the world at which times and then it was starting to investigate those areas now my approach and this is a really good example to use my approach for for everything is dragnetting information so every bit of information i can find people say how do you find any information well you look for it first of all people when you say oh look for if i say to someone who's never researched before research uh hubert brazier so Theresa May's father, they'll go and they'll put Hubert Brazier into Google and they won't even put like any quotation marks around it and they'll get a whole load of selection and they'll be like, oh my God, this is loads and loads. Google's going to take out things. All of these different f things have issues. You've got to get ready to type in Hubert Brazier to every single search bar you could possibly find in the whole universe. <laughs> or at least the universe that you're exploring, because it's obvious the universe you're exploring. You know, this information, information about him is going to be spread all the way around the place. Same with uh, someone like Klaus Schwab. Klaus Schwab, even though um there was basically nothing before 1968 about klaus schwab um i was able to find everything i was able to find everything that was partly because you have to go through things like for me i had to go through swiss archives i had to go through german legal archives i had to, uh, lots of german legal archives um uh, and uh, different sort of public archives you find in other countries so i've got to use translation tools i've got uh, you know think about which country might not might have the best database at a certain time and get to learn where all these databases are and after a while if I, you're doing these things over and over again i will be using the swiss newspaper archive again so it's bookmarked up there and i will be using the uh, german Landschaft archive or whatever it's called like i'm a lands archive uh, which gives you loads of public information so all of these things build up and so you, you just go through a point where and what i say to people i and you can do anyone can do it you, it all it all depends on the amount of sources you got, but you dragnet all information, you put it into chronological order, and the truth tells itself. You don't need to add in much, like just tiny bit in between, so that people can understand the direction it's going without encouraging a narrative or putting a narrative in place. You're just telling a story. And then at your at the end, journalism, it should be, in my opinion, this is how I see it. At the end, it should be then your opinion. You should have a little bit where you kind of give what you think about the whole thing, but everything else should just be all the information. You don't leave anything out and you don't, you know, you don't put extra in to back up a certain argument. You just put every bit of information down and that in itself is the art form. It's like using all of these different colors to paint the picture you've got in your mind. You're, you're going to do it, but at the end of the day, the picture's going to paint itself to some degree because those colors are chosen, those things are that that's the limit of your canvas. The limit is the information or the output or anything else you're gonna you're, you're gonna put out. So I just what I do, uh, and it takes some time to do, is dragnet information about something. A, a good example of this is the last parting of pieces. I mean, 
the amount of sources in those articles are unreal. I mean, unreal. You will have basically every second sentence in most parts of it is sourced up with really good sources. That's what's really important is that when you go through this process, the story is told to you and you realize what the most important information to put out. I become a vessel, a, like a kind of like emotionless. I still got my own belief and my own ideology. I don't have to leave any of that behind. But when I'm researching, I'm just putting these things down in order. And most of the time, when I'm finished, I go, wow, I wasn't expecting all of that. I expected it to be this way. And it's completely different. I didn't expect what Klaus Schwab did. I had no idea. I mean, once I discovered how he got, uh, how he got trained through Harvard and stuff and who was, who were given to him his mentors and who was running the program, it was just, mind-blowing it was my i i remember walking around like with my hand on my head in the park outside my house like well what have i discovered i discovered something enormous klaus schwab the head of the world economic forum was trained for a cia funded program funded by free cia conduits what the hell and no one else knows no one else knows you know and it's it's all there so when you say how do you do it you do it that way um do people want to do it or do people try to do it not very often and when they do what goes wrong that's the real that's what i've realized is different about what i'm doing and some other people are doing i'm not the only one who's who's doing this people do it they do it in their own ways but they do it um but the 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 real issue is once you actually sit down to write something can you control your emotion can you control your own desires to put your own emotion upon that uh, on upon the paper? Because that is the difference. If you could take out your own uh, emotion nearly completely and just put the information, the story tells itself, and you're able to see it yourself, and you're reading it just like anybody else would read it. I uh, once you realize that process, you realize in a sense it's just a cheat. All I'm good at doing is collecting all the information. I put it down on the paper, it writes itself. So I'm not doing that much. The, the story tells itself if you only look for the truth. If you don't, it becomes your, no one will read your work or they will and they'll go away with the wrong um, uh, idea. And later on, they'll come back and they'll be really angry with you uh, because and you've told them, you sold them a pup, you've led them down a false road that you've decided to go on. It has to be the truth. It has to be that in two, three years time it's still the truth it has to be that in 10 years time it's still the truth and the only way to do that um and to still your work to hold up in that time is to use the truth and make sure you've sourced it up so that's that's like you know how is by remembering that you're a human who's likely to imprint it his own his or hers own view on top of a subject and not doing that that's the how okay Wow. Okay. Yeah. That, that, that there's a lot there. Just um, one quick observation is um, I, I was talking recently to um, uh, to Brian O'Shea. I don't know if you if you know of him. He's um, he's the husband of uh, Naomi Wolf, and uh, I did I did a, a recent conversation with him, and he was saying like one of the things which leads him to start investigating is has something been fact-checked it's like if it's been fact-checked suddenly kind of alarm bells are going off and he's like hmm okay it's been fact-checked so there's probably some truth here you know let's go and see what it is and it's, it's interesting that you're almost doing the same thing but with uh wikipedia articles you're saying okay well what's been what's been removed what's been kind of taken out of these articles 
and then like let's use that as a lead to to try and find some stuff out and that's something it's kind of interesting because like so i just just say that that that's i was you doing that first with wikipedia very early after a while you don't need to you can see where people leave things out and you can read between the lines more because you get used to it yeah yeah, so it's, you seem to be doing a very, a very kind of similar thing. You're starting there, and then, and then just seeing, okay, where's the story here? And if they had actually just not revoked those things in the first place, maybe people's alarm bells wouldn't go off. You know, maybe for you, if if they hadn't revoked this stuff about, um, you know, who, who's um, Theresa May's father? father. Theresa May's father. Like if they hadn't have taken that out, you might have just glossed over it and thought, okay, there's nothing here. But they take it out and it's like, hmm, okay, let's let's see what's there. I mean, I, I'd love to go into each one of these things individually and just find out, but I, I kind of feel like we're not going to have enough time in one conversation. So maybe we should just keep to a bit more of a kind of zoomed out view for this time, but maybe in another one we could actually go into. I, into I'd be happy to go hyperspeed on any subject and tell you rundowns in the most accurate and uh, quick, way possible if you want or just focus in on one or two subjects it's well I, I, I guess just i guess just because you piqued my interest then what is it about Theresa may's father because that one sounds interesting i've not heard anything anything there so can you give us the the, the high level view of that one yeah it was really interesting uh Theresa may's father went to the priesthood um in about 1938 39 he had been born in, born in clonmore street in in london and um and he was avoiding the war it seems and he went up to uh study at the um oh, i can't remember the the petticoat men of the resurrection up in murfield up in yorkshire and your your part of the world uh where you're from and and um and murfield the 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 petticoat men of the resurrection as they were called were very interesting people who there was a lots of child abuse allegations later in um religious communities connected that used their facilities and murfield was a place where the kids got sent during the war and that's where Theresa may's father was based and even though that's not anything interesting it's like it gives interesting insight to how he was trained up to be um within the church church and before you knew it he was back in london during the war helping like uh in most disastrous affair like like a school that was bombed out pulling people out of the rubble i mean you can be imagine being a priest in those times was bloody awful uh the worst experiences you could possibly imagine and um uh, eventually he got sent to eastbourne hospital uh that's where he got put as chaplain and it's quite amazing story but um there seems to be maybe a reason why he was chosen and put there because there working there was a guy called Dr. John Bodkin Adams and Dr. John Bodkin Adams killed probably over 130 of his patients with lethal injection after getting them to sign uh, or uh, sign over all of their stuff to him in their will so it was a very clever person yeah yeah he's a harold shipman of his day he got off with it because he was having an affair with a guy called lord gwyn who was extremely powerful um and uh basically theresa may's father was the chaplain for all of that affair he would have been dealing seeing a lot of things behind the scenes now he never commented on any of that but that whole region during that time the church was so corrupt 
script. Um, it was where Vickery House and other people would later be um, uh, done for uh, a, a child molestation to a canon Peter Ball, who was a big friend of um, of uh, Prince Charles, King Charles now. Um, and others were convicted later on. For, and there seemed to be a lot of corruption down there. But he actually worked with a serial killer. Now, if your father worked with a serial killer, I think if there's nothing wrong with it, why shouldn't that be a Wikipedia page on uh, like Hubert Brazier should probably have his own Wikipedia page. He worked in these places and he once worked with Dr. John Bodkin Adams, who is now believed to have killed over 130 people, maybe up to 160. and was a Howard Shipman of his day. I mean, at the time, what was Theresa May doing? Well, she had just been home secretary, gone through all the child sexual, uh, the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse and uh, messed those up. Anna's Prime Minister, what, the first three uh, heads of the inquiries turned out to have connections with loads of people who were involved in the, who were being inquired about. <laughs> so it was obviously like um, uh, terrible, like butler slosh and people uh, being involved at the head. So she, she had uh, seemed to have messed it up on purpose. And then she was becoming prime minister and her dad had this sort of like thing in his background. It was a really interesting contrast. Look, this is how she mu muddied the water. And who was she protecting? Well, loads of the people she was protecting were in the Sussex di uh, diocese. A lot of them were in where her father had worked, um, mostly after, but some during the time uh, where he worked with a serial killer in hospital. I mean, if if a prime minister's uh, uh, dad worked with Harold Shipman himself, wouldn't you expect people to talk about it? You know, and it doesn't get talked about. So that's a good rundown on that. Oh, okay. So, but the insinuation is not that necessarily he was directly involved, but potentially that these were his friends, these were his community, and that they were protecting the community. I mean, he yeah, involved, I mean, he did. Yeah, sure. he did get protected. That's for sure. I, I mean, he he seemed to. He also got. Uh, he got. He got put into one of the best diets shortly afterwards. He goes to a, one church for a very short amount of time and then gets put in um, Oxford, right in the heart of the establishment. And I can't remember what it's called, but he's, a, he's um, uh, a, 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 basically, it's a very lucrative and good promotion. And they, he's he's at the heart of the establishment. So he seems to get paid off. So, But the insinuation is multiple things. And one of the things is that censorship these things have been hidden these things have been hidden from the public eye and that makes them more suspicious so that whole thing if it was talked about openly we wouldn't have a problem but seeing is that it just before the election i discovered that that theresa may's father worked with a serial killer and not one mainstream outlet covers it even though i know loads of like two hundred fifty thousand people have read it in no time whatsoever that's insane and that says something about our society Okay. Yeah. That's, um, that's super interesting. I'm, I look forward to kind of reading that, that work. I'm guessing you've got, is it one article or multiple articles on this, on this kind of topic? Um, on, on, on that one, that was one, that was one of my first articles. So it was relatively was it? short, about 3000 words. Um, it's down the bottom of okay. newspace.com at the moment, uh, because I, I actually talked about it in another podcast recently. Um, so I thought I'd put it up there for people to look at. Okay, cool. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah like there's there's so much there i mean I, I do want to just just kind of go to just zoom out a little bit for now 
and talk kind of more broadly about these kind of people that you investigate in the families and things like that. I know that at the moment, the Stanley Pottinger thing is the kind of the big one. So I'll definitely like spare some time just to talk, talk about that one and just speak about, you know, those revelations. But just from a wider view, let's say you're talking to someone, you know, I, I'm kind of pretty red-pilled on this stuff, although I'm not sure whether I'm red-pilled enough, you know, like, but I view these topics, these families, you know, the Gateses, the the Schwabs, these big political families, you know, Blairs, whoever it is. I kind of look at these people and I don't know whether... I don't know where they are on the spectrum of, you know, these people are just kind of technocrats that just want to control people and they have a lot of money. And, you know, once you've got so much money, you realize that, you know, the only way to get more power is to get political or corporate positions that try and get you more power over the world and control. And, you know, they just kind of get off on forcing people to do stuff and whatever that that thing is. But just having a technocratic kind of control, uh, mechan- uh, you know, technocratic control over the world, basically. And then there's the other side, you know, then you go to kind of like the extreme end of it where people are saying, oh, you know, they're all demonic and they, they worship Moloch and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And they all, they're basically just kind of like a international, you know, child sex trafficking ring and all this kind of stuff. And you've kind of got these two extremes. And I think that at the moment, like I don't, I've definitely moved more towards that extreme side, but I'm not like totally there on the, the, all the demonic stuff, but you seem like the perfect person to ask about this because you've probably done more digging than almost anyone. So what? What do you consider these families to be? What are they? What are they about? What what drives them? You know, what's the what's at the root of all of these um, these kind of tentacles that we see in terms of you know the World Economic Forum and all of this shady stuff and Epstein? But what's at the root of it with these families? Who ain't that a big question? But it's answerable. It's pretty. I, I think um, trying trying to understand that those extremes what you do is the best thing to do is work out where the extremes are and realize the truth is always in the middle but has scattered out outliers all around so you'll have bits where it's a one extreme and one uh, or another extreme and that'll be shocking but the majority of the truth always resides somewhere in between the the middle of the two um and that's really when you put it into context of these higher ups so for for instance i mentioned in uh the second uh the schwab piece of dr uh klaus schwab or how the cfr um etc <laughs> etc et um uh I mentioned that they like see themselves as a um, uh, sort of like evil guys on the mountaintop in Davos, looking over the plebs who don't know what's going on. And they see themselves as that, and we see them as that. And that means that we get angry at them, and they get this feeling of, oh, we are all powerful. But a lot of it is just show, because what they are, they're all trapped in cycles, the same sort of cycles, cycles that a certain group are controlling so we've got loads of different cycles we all know things have cycles and we all know that the term like revolution is like itself the idea of it going round in a circle now i've discussed a lot about you know who's actually in control and what those people are actually like and a lot of people say well the top three percent it's like you know you 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 start with the base idea the top three percent are the worst people in the world and everybody else is wonderful those people are evil and they they're in cults and they they worship the, the devil and malak and etc etc and bloody bloody blah 
And so people lead to the idea that then whenever they see someone's in the top three uh, percent uh, of uh, of wealth uh, of what we consider to be wealthy people, then we're suddenly going, oh yeah, those are the evil ones. Those are definitely the evil ones. But it's it's so mixed up, you know. There's loads of good people scattered all over the place. But what happens is that there's big families that one that have like a genetic trait that gets passed down it's a very strong one it's not everybody in the family okay you'll have like five to eight family members who all have a potential to be a complete narcissist and perfect to fit into like the capitalist world or the fascist world or something like those those members of the family rise to the top and end up with all of the family working to help them and and making the family achieve more and being able to create more wealth and so on and so forth and this stuff's been going on for hundreds of years so some of the people who have now reached the pinnacle of these uh, areas and not the top three percent you've got to be bloody crazy if you think they're the top three percent the top the majority of the top three percent like 2.9999999999 percent of it or something um uh are all um they're all buffer they're they're the ones who get taken down when the revolution when the cycle comes around and hits down and then comes back up they're the they're the buffer they they protect this layer it's a probably a, a 0.03% who are extremely rich have uh, have been in families that have seen this going from a long time and have helped set up uh, organizations all the way around the world that basically keep them being the main decision makers in some way that we don't see okay that is true do they have a different worldview are they a cult well, very possibly so, because they actually tick a lot of boxes. When you get up to things like, like, um, Bohemian Grove and stuff, where you, you know, a lot of people think, oh, secret societies and all. They're not even secret societies. These aren't secret societies. Bilderberg is a really good example of how these people see the world. They divide it up into three things, like the men of the mortarboard, the wise old owl and the Bohemian. You know, they, they, they see these different parts of society. Uh, the government, the state, uh, being um, the wise old owl, the the men of the mortarboards being the guys of education, and the bohemians being the guys of culture, and these three merge together. Now, if you can control the top of those, uh, that you can control basically everything in the world because everything trickles down from there. So these guys know this; they manipulate this. The guys who are extremely rich within the three percent, they you know that we can't offer them anything to sway their opinion, but the people above them can offer them loads and they'll be like oh, oh, oh god oh yeah they'll be like 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 one of us if we get offered like a million pound contract for doing the thing we love or something like oh yeah whatever whatever you know automatically we see freedom we see all of those things those people will say, say see the same thing from the people above so the people in these top three percent have made themselves and have been encouraged to make themselves look like these superior guys and they believe they're the, in charge but even those guys are not really in charge they're just in charge of doing the job and the job is for instance with the world economic forum simple is to create policy it's a is is to create policy that then gets inputted into uh nation states all the way around the world so everything can be centralized from uh, world economic forum or some other type of organization that may come after because at some point there's that lifetime leadership that Klaus Schwab has got is going to end? Is that going to go over to his son, Olivier Schwab, or his daughter? 
Nicole Schwab. <laughs> She's a character. Um, I, I doubt, doubtful. Um, more likely is that the organization will rip itself apart and something much more sinister is going to take its place from somewhere else, which has already probably been pre-designed and probably looks a lot like the Council on Foreign Relations. All of these mechanisms have been put, on, put in place by the uber, uber wealthy years and years ago, and they've been running normally, and they've been given these like hoods of conspiracy, uh, partially on purpose because it works so well. We just don't, you know, how can, and we can't fight them. How can we fight them? Well, we have to fight the little bits within them. First, we have to recognize they're the problem, and we don't. So they're winning all of the way. They're so far ahead. And the other thing is, there's like, you know, what a lot of my work has been doing on the World Economic Forum stuff is looking at how they select the leadership group for us. Like the perfect example, Global Leaders for Tomorrow, 90, d decided in 1992, run in 1993, where you had people like Tony Blair, Angela Merkel, Nicholas Sarkozy, many other people who were leaders, Bill Gates, everybody's there. Everybody's there. And they're all the all-powerful guys for the next 10 to 15 years. They're going to be in charge all over the place and they all get trained into one place don't everybody start to feel like that's a little bit suspicious all of that if you start to look at it and how these things get funded you realize that they the the uber wealthy are using uh um intelligence structure to run governments to run policy institutes to run uh non-governmental organizations there's constructs like us aid and um and uh, loads of things like the open society foundation and stuff that that all parts of this operation to that they can no longer uh the cia can no longer um get away with so they've been put out to other people to get away with um there's a great quote in the last article that i wrote with um a guy called khan disley and it's about it's called the non-governmental octopus and there's a great quote from someone um who worked for usaid who said that basically um i think he worked for usaid he said basically in the late 60s um uh, and through the 60s there was loads of uproar about all of these different programs that had been funded by the cia being discovered to have been funded by the cia people went crazy about it and things got cancelled here things got cancelled there that's what i discovered in kissinger's international seminar was one of those klaus schwab went through it pierre trudeau went through it, it was justin trudeau's father like other big people went through it well they said they couldn't have that anymore they had to do something different they had to do something different so they had to create basically these development organizations so cia cut out so that in the 80s and this quote was from the 80s that in the 80s they could start doing what the cia was doing in the past openly so that's all that changed is that the cia has outsourced intelligence infrastructure increasing rapidly that's what we're seeing increasing until eventually it'll own everything it'll do everything the intelligence infrastructure will be in control so this all I guess the seed at the root of all of this is the CIA in your, in your view. Do I, do I gather? Uh, I, I, they're all, I mean, they've all got, they've all got a little bit of something in the fight. They've all got a little bit of something. something. There's a load of intelligence agencies who've all got something. Mm -hmm. There's a load of people who work in government who've all got a lot of wealth or represent people who've got a, a vast amount of wealth and every single one of them knows a new system is about to be implemented and if you are in control of the levers of that system then you are in control of the future that's the cbdc's that's
that's transhumanism. That's all of the things, the technocracy that's coming before us. That's stakeholder capitalism, an ideology presented by Klaus Schwab himself, I think, given to him by other people. So, and 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 something I, I think you uh, people have to understand about stakeholder capitalism, you know, the new world order that the the uh, was based upon getting that embedded within society you know everything points going towards stakeholder capitalism which is like merging fascism capitalism communism the the most productive parts for the state and for the intelligence apparatus to be incorporated within some sort of system that means that then they can take complete control who who they are and what they are the cia are part of the apparatus the people who decide what the cia are probably concentrating on are usually members of things like the council on foreign relations and so there's a load of these round table groups that go up the ladder until obviously there's one at the top or two at the top or three at the top that we don't know about so we know uh, it, nowadays this is another thing you can do if you want to find a story Go look at anyone who works for the Council on Foreign Relations. Anyone, anyone, pick at random. Anyone who works on the Council on Foreign Relations, go on an adventure. You'll, uh, you'll red pill, you'll black pill. You'll be like, oh man, it's, you know, it's it, it, they, uh, it is an infrastructure. But they all know they're all doing the same thing. And this goes back to the beginning. They're all doing the same thing. They're trying to manage the cycles that exist that they have no control over. So every time. That cycle comes round, that 3% get cut away, but that 0.3% has to remain in power. So they've created all of those bits and bobs, all of that infrastructure to mean that when it goes round, the right people get it. And when it goes all the way back round, they're still at the top. And this is what they do. Mm -hmm. So this is the guys who are ruling on the top. They're not one denomination. They're not one uh, ilk. They're not one family. They're a collection of extremely rich and powerful people from all around the world who all have a bit of their finger in the pie and use the tools uh, of control to maintain that infrastructure and maintain their place within that infrastructure. And that one of those tools, yes, is the Central Intelligence Agency. All right, let's take a quick break to talk about some of the ways you can support my work. The first is via Buy Me A Coffee, where you can give a one-off donation or join one of the three membership tiers that are on there. And don't forget that you can also now book a one-on-one call with myself. So if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, then you'll probably already know my areas of interest and my areas of expertise. In particular, that would be moving and living abroad, freelancing and remote working, following your passions and working authentically in an industry that you care about, podcasting and content creation, and preserving and protecting your wealth with Bitcoin. These are definitely the key areas that I think that I can provide a lot of value. But if you want to talk to me about absolutely anything with a one-on-one call, then you can do that through Buy Me A Coffee now as well. As always, you can also support me with the Bitcoin tip. That's both on-chain and via the Lightning Network. And so far, I think I've only got one Bitcoin tip ever. So I'll tell you what, if you give me a Bitcoin tip for over $5, I don't know what that is in sats, but let's say $5, I will give you a shout out in the next episode. And finally, if you use my affiliate links, that's another great way of supporting me. So check out the link in the description for Surfshark VPN. This is simply the best VPN on the market. I've been using it for years and have never changed. I've got it on my computer, got it on my phone. I use it all the time for everything. So if you're not using VPN, you absolutely should be. It's the best way to protect your privacy online. And in my experience, Surfshark is the best VPN going. It's also very, very competitively priced. And if you get it now with my affiliate link, you will get 82% off and two months free. So I promise you will not regret using Surfshark VPN. It's a really, really great product. I wouldn't shield for anything I don't truly believe in. 
I plan to add more affiliate links going forward. But for now, Surfshark's it. If you don't have a VPN, click that link. If you do have a VPN, consider switching to Surfshark. It is a great deal. And as I said, in my opinion, it's the best on the market. All right, that's enough of the ad break. If you haven't supported me already, please do consider it. Right now, I'm still not making enough from the show to pay for the outgoings. And I really do want to reach that milestone soon. All right, appreciate you all. Back to the episode. Okay, right. Yeah, that's a that's a really good overview. I mean, um, I, I guess when I... It, when I look at things like, you know, I, I try not to get too, too pulled into, into the whole, you know, like demonic side of it, but I see things like, you know, the Balenciaga stuff and also, you know, like, uh, with, Je- with like, um, some of the, some of the stuff that happened with like Jeffrey Epstein, you see some of the pictures and like that he had in his home and stuff like that. It's all very, it's all very kind of like dark and there seems to be a, like almost like a dark religious element. And like you said, you know, you mentioned Bohemian Grove as well. There seems to be like cult doesn't seem to quite do it justice. Like it is, it is a cult. I think that a cult, you can definitely tick that box, but there seems to, it seems to kind of go a level deeper where there is some kind of darkness there that they are like attracted to, you know, like they're really attracted to this very, very dark stuff, you know, anything to do with innocence, to do with like child innocence, stuff to do with, you know, to do with, you know, death and, you know, with Balenciaga stuff. It's all this kind of like, I guess, like celebration of like death and uh, and and kind of breaching the innocence of, of of children and stuff. There seems to be this this thing there. There's some essence there that's, you know, and maybe it's, it's almost like they're just doing this kind of like a bit of a, a nod to it. You know, it's just a bit of a nod, a bit of a joke within the within this cult. But maybe it's more than that. Maybe there is actually some some real substance there. And these people who say that there is like, you know, some kind of worshipping of the occult, you know, if if that makes sense. I'm not sure whether whether that's the correct use of the term, but like, you know, you know what I'm getting at here? Yeah, yeah. And not only do I know what you're getting at, I have the prime example I can run through. I did a load of investigating of a guy called Hod Dibbin, Horace Dibbin, Horace Ronald Dibbin. What a guy Horace Ronald Dibbin is. I mean, truly amazing. He was a pilot um, based up. He was, I think he was a, like a proper commander up there in the skies during World War II. And he was based up in Orkney or Shetlands in the, um, the, the village of Twat. It was literally called the village of twat with two t's um and and uh and he uh would eventually uh be based in london um and would become central to the man in the mask parties um and the satanism parties that were were coming uh would that happen during the early 60s now he also his wife is late is is uh, it, one of his wives, uh, Mariella Novotny, um, was uh, smuggled out of JFK's bedchamber and out of America at one point. Was involved in the perfumer affair and the downfall of the the, the uh, British government. Um, they were very intelligence linked. He actually started taking over nightclubs uh, in London in the late fifties that would then be sold on to the craze and uh, then taken over by intelligence eventually because they were the places where communists and so. Soviets used to drop their letters and and uh, their dead letter drops or whatever they called them, where they're sending uh, giving information to each other in darkened rooms in nightclubs. The the intelligence agencies wanted to be in control of it, and Hod Dibbin became central to that. And at this time, Hod Dibbin, when everything got mad, when all of the heat was on him, he brought out four articles in uh, the Mirror newspaper, in the Sunday Mirror, each Sunday for four weeks. Whereas Horace Dibbin and his battle against Satanism and they say 
satanic forces and becoming a member of the satanic brotherhood in the Orkney Isles or whatever it was and and uh, and doing and having sex parties that were like this and like that well it turns out he was hosting exact replica sex parties at the highest ends of London to all of the establishment while he's uh, writing these articles for the mirror he's doing exactly that they're projecting over uh, yeah it was more like an advert like the the they would say look he's got a backstory and the stories right, are okay. ridiculous i mean the stories are ridiculous but it was he was intelligence there's no doubt he was intelligence he later admits he was intelligence mariella novartney doesn't get to admit anything because she drowns in jelly <laughs> <laughs> which is I, I mean an amazing end but obviously a bit suspicious seeing as yeah of what you've been involved with um but but hod dibbing was a real character antique stealer he was a man about town um and he saw the benefit of satanism as an idea to be an allure to the people who have everything don't have anything they don't want to go to church they don't like all of that stuff they want to be hidden they want to be subversive what happened during the world war and then the cold war was really interesting it was the elite and the princes and the dukes and all of these knights who were conscripted to be spies and intelligence agents and working uh in the darkness you know all of these guys were well rewarded people who suddenly become the most important people around and that was waning and it was a, a battle for all of these royals to have a bit of influence and all these minor royals and all of these people who wanted uh, influence anyway um they were all battling and they loved the idea of subversive activities and so hot dipping sex parties had peacocks walking around uh marielle and the votney pleasing men in the middle of the room while people like gangsters like billy hill and the like who were, were like running the scene at the time involved in the brinks mat robbery were sitting around on big chairs and the craze watching people like uh having sex in public these parties existed these people put it on but it was a show and the same can be said of epstein i'm working on something right now uh where someone who was in uh, supposedly in like basically what sounds like an epstein training sex party but not Ep epstein it was uh, john luke brunel i think is much more likely that it was him and they were putting on these sex parties for elites even in the 90s and the noughties and come on we know what people are like people loved themed parties okay and if you like bonga bonga parties then you want your bonga bonga parties to be themed so there's going to be elements like that as well but there's also people who uh, have been fed ideology. And I've met loads of people who I, I have met a fair few people now who have been fed some form of spiritual ideology that seems to be given to them more from hypnosis and suggestion than it is from anything else. So I think there were techniques that were developed that allowed people to seed in things into the wider community that stuck, stayed became people who would mentor other people in the dark arts and a lot of it was bump a lot of it was nonsense but it, something once nonsense becomes realized and manifest in reality it looks no different because you still have the same output and that output 
is within that sort of stuff is satanist uh, satanist stuff is abuse of course horrible nasty ritualistic abuse and all of the rituals are out there for it all of the evidence that people are doing stuff like that pops up here and there um but the fact that it's got any real spiritual value i think that's a zero isn't it there's there's is a zero spiritual value to all of all of that stuff mm. okay yeah so if i gather from what you're saying it's essentially there's a lot there's these these parties that were going on and they're kind of themed and they like the whole they they like to kind of dress it up and you know you dress it up with these you know just like a lot of kink parties i imagine i imagine uh you know they're going to be like themed where you know you you dress up in certain things or you've got the devil horns or whatever and it's kind of like flirtatious and it's using these things so you think it's it's kind of like that and then it just goes like really really extreme in that direction but there's no actual belief system behind it there's no actual kind of like worshiping or or any kind of religious element it's just more that they they are drawn and attracted and kind of find i guess some kind of tantalization in these in these themes the majority of the constituent parts the individuals involved will have no real realization of what any ceremony actually means they'll just be in a mask standing there while the other people are doing a load of stuff and they're just going to sit quiet and not say anything you know that's the majority of all cults to be honest and all religions and all everything else is a load of people who don't really believe in it all going uh-oh i better better not say anything but i i think there's an, a massive element of that in there is a lot of it is pomp and ceremony it's about it's about showing that they're still involved in something subversive and they they've got special access to a something outside society that would be hated by society this is a prerequisite it seems a very certain amount of very rich people they feel like if it's, it would be hor seen as horrific by society, that's the perfect thing for them to do. Because there's an element of you only get rich with that narcissistic personality disorder running through your family, thick and rich. And so yeah. you're, you're, that's going to be the actions of those constituent parts. Yeah. Well, it's like a selection bias in a way, isn't it? It's like some people say, oh, you know what? Like all of these billionaires, they're all like these, they're all kind of like, um, sadistic and everything and then they you know and they they have this kind of cult and they become billionaires but it could be that you know the kind of traits you need to become a billionaire actually means that it selects generally obviously not always but it might just select generally for a certain type of person who's into all this kind of stuff you know people who you know for instance the sociopaths don't have empathy etc and maybe that's why you see so many billionaires who you know you know for instance like jeffrey epstein perfect example right yeah 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 and i think i i was just thinking when you were saying that i was thinking it's like if you're empathic uh, uh you know that uh, you have this feeling of not wanting to take from people and right. that includes a financial level and there is going to be a massive disparity between wealth in these two areas and we see that already uh, I mean, and it gets worse. It's going to get worse and worse over time. What we're seeing is everything getting sucked up and they're going to have to change your system because eventually that Pareto distribution or however Jordan B. Peterson goes on about it is going to just uh, uh, keep keep going and the rich will own everything and you'll mm -hmm. have to be happy. Yeah, well, I hopefully i can i can come back to that if we ha if we have time on that point cuz i do want to go a bit more into um 
how your politics has evolved. But I want to give you, I want to make sure you have the opportunity to talk about the Stanley Pottinger stuff because I know that's the the kind of big revelation for you at the moment. So do you want to give the the kind of broad level overview of that for people who haven't heard it? Yeah, a fantastic story. I mean, again, I, I didn't I never knew who Stanley Pottinger was. I hadn't even noticed him. I've been on the Epstein scene loads. I just hadn't thought about it, you know? Um, I've been like researching, but you don't, you just don't think about it because he was one of the law partners. He was, um, Edwards Pottinger was a law firm that took up most of the representation for the majority of the Epstein, the big Epstein victims, um, to represent them. And Edwards Pottinger was formed in about 2014. And I, I went through this strange route to get to investigating John Stanley Pottinger, as he's called. But it led me eventually all of the way back, all of the way back um, to the 50s and to looking at his father. And his father's a really interesting guy, John Pottinger, who had an insurance company and was uh, a city commissioner in Dayton, Ohio. And, oh, this is such a brilliant story. Such a brilliant story. And, again, a lot of this is just, like, if you go to the articles, it's just sourced up. I've got the, the Pottinger identity, Pottinger supremacy, and the Pottinger ultimatum, of course. And the Pottinger just, identity. Just let me stop you one second, Johnny. Okay. Like, before we go into in, a bit more into the weeds a bit, I don't actually know who, who um, Pottinger is. Is it Pottinger, Pottinger? Um, mm -hmm. I don't actually know like who he is at all or where he comes into any of the picture. Did you say that he was, he was a, he did, he had something to do with Epstein and some other he, kind of like He's, cases, um, Epps, he's a lawyer for the majority of Epstein, uh, the Epstein victims. Right. Okay. But, so but also he, a lawyer for other things as well, which. Oh yeah. Yeah. But, but he's been a lot of things. The many faces of John Stanley Pottinger was an article that was brought out. I think when maybe the New York and New York times I can't remember. Um, he's been many things. He's been many things, okay. but now, now I think they've just split only just split, uh, Edwards Pottinger. Um, and Pottinger is about 84, 85 now. And John okay. Stanley Pottinger, he, yeah. A part of Ed was potting a boat. If you go back in time, go back in time, you get to his father, and his father dies pretty early um, when he's about 47 and uh, that was in 1958 when John Stanley Potting is just going to Harvard and he's going to study government in Harvard. He's a, he's a very uh, interesting, he's basically the all-star quarterback. The, 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 he's on the committee of committees. He's on the council for councils. He's a top boy in school or throughout school. And that doesn't change. Eventually he goes into a, um, a, a law firm after um, uh, he studied at Harvard. So he studies government for four years and studies law for four years. Um, but in between, his brother goes missing. Um, um, uh, it goes missing for 44 days at the same time as uh, the, his 17 year old babysitter, Sherry Vandervile, who also went missing a few days later. Uh, his car was found with one shoe next to it, a bloody shirt, some beer cans. Uh, the scouts went out, the 300 boy scouts searched the areas. They had planes flying over the top. You know, they went all out to find, uh, uh, uh to find, um, 
uh, Stanley Pottinger's brother David Forbes Pottinger, and they couldn't do it because uh, he was already sailing around. He had trafficked a girl, uh, underage girl, across state lines for sex, uh, and eventually he would be found in a ditch in Tennessee, and he would say he had amnesia. And uh, it's a brilliant story, and he gets caught out. He gets caught out. Uh, Cherry Vanderbilt eventually turns up and says, "Yeah, he took me, and we went on a yacht, and he had sex with me loads." And uh, and he gets found out, and he gets goes to juvenile court, and he gets a slap on the wrist. And um, that's a very interesting like start because, of course, you know, is uh, it's like, oh, this family's extremely interesting. His father, he had been a David Forbes Potting had also been a city commissioner of Dayton, Ohio, like his father, um, and his father had been the fourth Dayton, Ohio city commissioner to die while in office so there was loads of really interesting things he had his his father had taken john stanley pottinger and uh, not david but i don't think but john stanley pottinger uh, on a yacht tour to the soviet union in the late 50s it just seems like a nut thing to do and then when john stanley pottinger is 17 years old he's standing up he says in the newspaper he's standing up in front of a room full of adults telling him about what it's like behind the iron curtain this kid's going places you know this kid's going places and he does i mean he's in harvard during the time where brzezinski where kissinger where goldman all of these like uh, people who are going to shape society are all there shaping the best they can find so uh, klaus schwab uh, uh, a couple of years after um or a year after uh pottinger leaves harvard klaus schwab starts attending kissinger's international seminar so it's a time of great power um being forged in in that area and yeah pottinger leaves harvard does government then does law then he goes to broad curry schultz he tries one case in about four years he's involved in the republican party he's doing stuff behind the scenes then he um uh basically gets a, a, a place in the Department of Health, Education and Welfare under Nixon in 1969. Then 1970, he's the head of the Department of Civil Rights uh, under the jurisdiction, uh, joint, I think, of Health, Education and Welfare Department and the D Justice Department. Three years later, he'd be in the Civil Rights Division as Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department in 1973. So he serves under Nixon and he serves under Ford. Pottinger is the man this is it got there pottinger is the man he's the cover-up he's your boy this is the most important person i think for this this are uh, these articles don't aren't just all right they change american history they change american history pottinger was a man who signed off the uh, the investigation into the assassination of martin luther king which we now know had loads of errors within it and he said everything was rosy he's the one who stays on for an extra year to sign off the investigation into watergate another massive scandal he signs off the investigation into the kent state massacre so the when the, the, the students get shot in the lawns of kent state um and there's an order to fire and later on his tapes have come out and someone says oh look there's an order to fire on it and he didn't find any of that of course because stan the man is your cleanup crew stan the man is the guy to go into these situations and win wounded knee when there was an uprising and an indian reservation after a guy called uh i think his name was richard wilson became the the uh 
ruling the the reservation after some really dodgy moves political moves um the, the government would harass aim and the other side who were opposing him for two years with fake cases that they would take him in and out of court under the direction of stanley pottinger uh, stanley pottinger would use orlando letelier's murder he was a far he used to be the um uh like foreign secretary for whatever the equivalent is for chile under uh allende of course cia put pinochet in charge in 1973 and a lot of people had to flee the country including orlando letelier orlando letelier was in washington going down embassy row in 1976 in in his car with uh with three other people when it was blown up by car bomb outside the chilean embassy on american soil um uh, it was under operation condor which was a mixed uh nation operation intelligence operation um so there's like uh, different south american countries uh argentina uh, argentina um chile and a few other smaller countries basically used different intelligence agents to commit what they called sanctions and operations on other people's in other people's countries and because it was multinational uh team it made it really hard to work out who to hold to account and operation condor was basically used to muddy any a, a potential investigation when orlando letelier was killed outside uh the chilean embassy in uh in america in washington dc itself crazy it was uh, eugene proper who was put in charge of investigating the case and the first thing he did was get whooped up by jay stanley partinger who takes him across to meet his good friend and he says good friend really good friend who was then director of the cia george hw bush and together george hw bush says well i can help you with this operation condor stuff if you give me rights to spy on american citizens domestically <laughs> and pottinger goes off with you pottinger goes off and has it signed off with the justice department to domestically allow domestic surveillance of american citizens because of the murder of Orlando lasalier on behalf of his mate george hw bush next year he'd be leaving office he'd be allowed to stay on under carter to finish off covering up watergate uh <laughs> which is just also insane. And then he would do two very interesting things. He would uh, be involved in um, a firm that was like, it, it, it did a certain job. Basically, it represented a, one case uh, that was really interesting was me, a, a, a forest products company called Mead were in a hostile takeover against Armand Hammer's Occidental Petroleum. Armand Hammer was the king of blackmail and intelligence operations and Pottinger destroyed him, destroyed him and had had the the whole thing called off in the courtroom pottinger's that good he was the king he used blackmail by by rumors i haven't put out any article but the rumors are he blackmailed armand hammer or said in court about armand hammer having been threatened in moscow by two kgb agents when someone walks into his hotel room and he's in his underpants on his knees and stuff so he, he completely knocked out of the park and then he represents a, um, a another company called chemical bank which eventually gets it's taken over by the Rockefellers. Um, and basically he's a compliance officer of the highest order so it's about to, everything's about to be computerized and they're making sure that there's nothing that they're going to get big fines for because banks are getting massive fines during that period so they're finding all the illegal stuff and removing it before it can be found that's what Stanley Pottinger's job was 1980 he's representing this is really important he's representing Gerald Bull and Gerald Bull uh, Gerald V. Bull is um, the head of Space Research Corporation which has CIA 
contracts, uh, CIA uh, conduit funded contract and direct CIA help um, of tr to traffic arms to the apartheid regime in South Africa to use against communist Angola. Yeah, I think it's Angola. Um, and, and which goes ahead and happens. And eventually Gerald Bull is hauled into court for uh, trafficking to an, uh, the apartheid regime. He gets off in Canada, ends up in USA in court. And who represents him? Jay Stanley Pottinger. Now that year, Jay Stanley Pottinger organizes Iran-Contra. Oh, he organizes smuggling arms to a, um, uh, to a, a sanctioned regime illegally with who else is involved in that? Jeffrey Epstein's funding Adnan Khashoggi, who's working with Cyrus Hashemi, who's a client, a business partner as J. Stanley Pottinger. So 1980, J. Stanley Pottinger is working with Jeffrey Epstein. He also says that himself in uh, Bradley Edwards' book, Relentless Pursuit. He says, um, in the early 80s, I shared an office with Jeffrey Epstein um, and it only lasted a few weeks. Well, no, he was involved in Iran-Contra with Jeffrey Epstein, smuggling guns to the Iranian regime in return for the October surprise, which would see which Stanley Pottinger was central in organizing, going to meetings in Madrid and Barcelona to meet representatives of Iranian government and the CIA, the future head of the CIA, along with loads of other CIA and Reagan and Bush officials to assure that the Iranians held the hostages back in the Iranian hostage crisis until after October so that they would have the October surprise. Reagan and Bush would get in and beat Carter, which is exactly what happened. And they would do a coup in their own country, a coup of America organized centrally by J. Stanley Pottinger to get his good friend George H.W. Bush in office. And then what happens? Well, 1984, it turns out that, well, uh-oh, uh-oh, the FBI hadn't been in on most of this and been let in and they had been recording Jay Stanley Pottinger's office for, 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 for 1980 while he's doing all of these deals and they know everything and suddenly 1984 it all like he has to go underground really quickly moves off to Mexico soon after <laughs> he's living in Mexico I say with a little little moustache and a sombrero like, like hiding out going no I know Stanley Pottinger man I know Stanley Pottinger but he is Stanley Pottinger um, he, he also has to leave his uh, long time girlfriend when that happens gloria steinem who was a famous cia agent who worked for the cia for since 1958 at least out of harvard just as jay stanley pottinger was going to harvard um as a young guy so there's so many connections um and by 1986 so he's been involved in like every major event, like the top level. He's the top cover-up man for um, the investigation of Martin Luther King, Watergate, Kent State Massacre. He's involved with wounded knees, involved in assassination of Orlando Letelli. He's involved in domestic surveillance. Uh, he's involved in Iran Contra. He's involved in the October Surprise. He defends Gerald Bull. It's crazy. He gets away with it all 1984. Rudy Giuliani's put in charge of looking at whether there's a case. And he goes, oh, well, we'll see. We're going to charge these other guys who will all get pardoned by who? George H.W. Bush in 1992 when he's leaving office. It's a big circle jerk. Everybody gets pardoned by Reagan or Bush at the end of it. 
Bottinger doesn't even get on the radar. 1987, he comes back. He becomes uh, uh, really involved in different organizations, including Rockefeller Foundation. Um, he uh, the oh, the Nash, I think it's the National Institute for American Civil Rights, something like that. Is called. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, the organization is within the the third article, I think, or the second article. It's real sad that he's involved in that because they have Martin Luther King up in front, you know, and that guy is involved in what. what you, the state sponsored assassination of Martin Luther King. So that's pretty crazy. But this gets even more crazy because in 1990, <laughs> he'd already worked with him. They already knew each other. But in 1990, J. Stanley Pottinger buys a house. It's his second house. His first house he buys in Twin Lakes, South Salem. He buys another house in Palm Beach, East Island Drive or something it's called. Um, and it's 500 meters as the crow flies from Jeffrey Epstein's Mansion of Horror 358 El Brillo Way. They were actually very close neighbors. And then in 1995, he becomes a best-selling author. He continues being a best-selling author to 2005, basically scrubs his old, old, uh, old history. No one knows anything about it. By the time it comes around to uh, getting back involved in doing legal stuff, well, he seems to already be doing things for a guy called David Boyce, uh, who's a very big-time lawyer who's handled some massive cases and is handling some of the Epstein victims too. He already seems to be lurking in the background. But... Like the introduction of Pottinger into the Epstein case, I thought, how am I going to ever find that? And it's written down like Bradley Edwards in Relentless Pursuit describes the moment where he picked up Virginia Gouffre, one of the most famous of the Epstein um, victims. Uh, he picks her up at the airport after she decides to come back and fight the case. And that night he gets a phone call unexpected at like midnight from Jay Stanley Pottinger who says, hey. Brad, you don't know me. My name's John Stanley Pottinger. And, you know, I know you're involved in this case, you know, Jeffrey Epstein. But uh, I, I, we don't want to reinvent the wheel, but we're involved in it too. And maybe we can work together. And the whole time in Relentless Pursuit, Bradley Edwards, who is the other lawyer, like lawyer to have represented the majority of the Epstein victims, Edwards Pottinger was their law firm they formed. He goes on in his book about how obviously Stanley Pottinger's CIA. He's obviously, I thought he was a spy. Definitely. I decided to get something to record him. I failed to get something to record him. I went there. It was obviously he's a spy. And I keep thinking that he's a spy. And then he's like, and then I asked my team whether we should join a law firm with Stanley Pottinger. And they also said that would be a great fit and then suddenly he he creates edwards pottinger pottinger uh one of the cia's key men becomes the key person one of the key lawyers handling the jeffrey epstein case at the same time bradley edwards is having daily com uh, or, or regular conversation not daily regular conversations in starbucks boca rat and amongst other places with jeffrey epstein himself that is insane that is it the whole thing is like uh, it, it is just obviously they needed to manage the situation the first one uh we all know that they corrupted every single level every single side and the whole case was corrupt he epstein went into prison had an open door had his own office worked for his foundation was let out for for, for a lot of the late part of it and and did not serve any time he he had roughly been it, it was clear from the evidence that he had been molesting 
two to three underage girls a day for at, at, at least you could say uh for uh over 10 years uh it would been over 10 years but if you just class 10 years that's over eight thousand different offenses against children that you should have been prosecuted for and someone like that should never ever be allowed out instead everybody was corrupted co-opted soon one of the other epstein victim famous epstein supposed epstein victim i gotta say with her uh maria farmer um is is in a, a like in a firm before she's made the affidavit is in a firm with jay stanley pottinger um that's like it seems like a front for something else and that's that finding that which shocked me and that's how what led me to investigate stanley pottinger in the first place and that's what i found so i found one point where it was like okay this person's story doesn't make sense most people in the epstein case nearly every single victim is telling the truth nearly every single victim but nearly every single victim isn't named all of the named victims i i have to go through their cases one by one at the moment because some of them yeah they're victims but some of them were adults who were obviously of sound mind and able to make their own decisions you know um so i got led down to a point where now i like in a place i never expected to be which is looking at everybody's story afresh and finding that there's holes all over the place and leading me to places that are so dirty and dark that they change american history wow that is that is yeah like you said that really does change more than just epstein but it goes back into so many different things so yeah congrats on on all of that research and and kind of going deep on that because i've never heard any of that i've never heard the name before but it's obviously a very very like yeah you know important person not you know not to important in the in the context of important for the for the story of epstein and for american history so just one thing that you that you said there well, there's two, there's just two things I wanted to, to just kind of pick up on. One was with this guy, um, you said that he met with the other, with the other lawyer, the lawyer who was originally, um, representing the victims and they kind of made this firm together. So the one who was originally representing the victims, he's a good guy. Like he, he, who kind of got corrupted or yeah. How does that go? I think if the biggest lawyers in America, like David Boyce, um, come, it gets to like this, right? Okay. So you're bradley edwards you're going over to meet with the people you who are going to help you with this epstein case david boyce and bradley edwards they're big time lawyers you're going over to their place and it's the same uh, offices as darren indyke jeffrey epstein's lawyer you've got to be already concerned but he keeps going and going all through all of the marks all of the signals come up and it's clear you don't keep and this is the thing about victims too you can be a victim you can be a victim but you can also be someone who worked in an illegal enterprise you know those two things they don't make they're, they're not mutually exclusive you can have been victimized and then made really bad decisions afterwards those two things are not mutually exclusive you know um i think that that bradley edwards saw as seen a chance to be um very famous realized how deep and dark that the the people david boyce and uh stanley pottinger are old age pensioners they're on their way out there's no way they're going to be the ones left holding the baby at the end of this bradley uh, uh bradley edwards definitely is the one who's 
been left to hold the baby and then he wrote relentless pursuit which makes it look like he's been uh an unwitting victim of a cia sort of scam afterwards i think he's writing his own story and his own narrative you've got everybody's that's my opinion you've got to make your own opinion based on the evidence and based on what you see maybe bradley edwards is unwitting uh victim of a cia plot to control a case but he has made it clear that he knew that he has to he can't both be a lawyer and understand things in legal terms and not understand that he realized there was something suspicious and he keep kept going and to the okay. point where he allowed Pottinger in to represent the victims. And and you think that some of the victims themselves are not legit. It sounded like that some of them have their own connections with Pottinger. 100% Maria Farmer. Maria Farmer has um, not only her own connections with Jay Stanley Pottinger. I have had personal interactions with Farmer that have not been very good. Um, she tried to actually get some guy who who are now against each other. That's always how it works. Um, to infiltrate and uh, undermine some of the work I was doing as well. She, she's uh, an amazingly interesting character. Not all she seems. She is hard on the attack right now. And and I, I think she's just slowly going to get pushed out of the case because her story is so dodgy and so provably false. And she has already been to some degree. When they turned up to court, she wasn't there. You know, they do that sort of stuff. But she still gained financially from the Jeffrey Epstein case. The other thing is, is she does not fit the profile one iota. If you've done any uh, research into FBI profiling techniques, you'll know that Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell are preferential pedophiles, probably and most likely sadistic preferential pedophiles uh, to some level. That's a very rare like type of pedophile but they also were expressly interested in girls of a certain age 18 was already getting too old 20 way too old mid-20s she claimed she was assaulted in her mid-20s and it does and the way it, it, it happened none of it fits the profile none of it makes any sense um and with all of the other holes and her connections to stanley pottinger before she wrote the affidavit and um, like i say so many other holes um she says she was in hiding for 20 something years um uh, and i found her facebook account i found her what myspace or something she's got her own website called mariafarmer.com um and she seems to have other links which i haven't quite explored yet and um i I don't think she'll be out in public commenting in about six months to a year's time i think all of this she's done this to herself and it's caught up and eventually she's going to be told to stay out of the limelight i don't know who's going to do that i think it's probably going to be her very seemingly wiser sister who's also a victim of epstein but i believe that yes epstein tried to touch her and she ran into the bathroom and got scared i believe that probably did happen sound like epstein Okay. Yeah. And I guess if you do have a lawyer who's overseeing this, the, um, I guess he's overseeing the prosecution, right? He's, he's on this, on the side of the, the victims or supposedly purportedly. And, uh, it sounds like he's, these people have kind of been seeded into this case to maybe try to derail it in some way. Possibly, possibly. And certainly it sounds like Pottinger is, um, fits that bill, but I guess there's a question mark as to as to the victims at this point. 
yeah, completely. There's a question mark to all the victims. Um, the only one, I, like I say, the only one I can say for sure that I, ha I have no doubt that if you scratch, anyone scratches away at that story, it all cr goes crumbling apart. Uh, she she appears very shortly uh, a bit in the third Pottinger piece, the Pottinger Ultimatum. Um, the, the, the amount of sources that are in there, follow those sources. You'll discover for yourself that she wasn't in hiding, that a lot of her story doesn't make sense. Then you have to ask yourself, a question is it right that someone uses the abuse of others and virtue as a mixed tool to mean that no one can say you're telling a lie and you've gained money from telling a lie i think i think that's uh that's something we should be able in a normal society with normal rule of law be able to call out people who we don't think are telling the truth even in the most sensitive cases and so this is a very sensitive case and by all means i'm not saying people like virginia gufre are lying but there are points where you say okay d were you over a certain age and committing these acts and if so what does that mean and what does that say and why isn't it investigated further so within the epstein case what you'll find is there's loads of potential investigations but 99.99999 percent of the investigations have not been touched it would cost too much money probably the you know if it was in britain i don't know what the american equivalent is but the cps would say oh no that's uh that's too much money to prosecute there so there's probably a bit of financial incentive not to prosecute but there's a load of cases there which obviously these were people who worked in a criminal enterprise um that molested that the part of it molested young girls but the majority of it was not that what epstein was was not just a child molester and that's a lot of what people are they're trying to leave you with he was definitely a child molester but he was not only a child molester he did a very important job for the cia a load of people say uh uh, uh mossad 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 over again and every time we investigate all of the people surrounding him are linked with the cia and what I've come to the conclusion of is that Epstein ran the East Coast. Uh, it is something I was talking about with Charlie Robinson the other day, and he was saying, yeah, he ran the East Coast. Of course, he ran the East Coast. Who did he run the East Coast for? Well, he's based in America. All of his bases in America, he's working with Americans. And a lot of, lot of it is like, there's a lot of anti-Semitic tropes in there because lots of Jewish people work with Epstein and Epstein himself has a Jewish name. That must mean all Jewish people are Mossad because they couldn't have be a lead, uh, be aligned with America. But loads of Americans and Jewish people, uh, I mean, Jewish people consider lots of American Jews consider themselves Americans, first and foremost, and would be likely happy, you know, a lot of, of people in power would be happily work for the CIA. Um, it, it doesn't suddenly mean you're only going to work for this intelligence agency or that intelligence agency because of your descendancy. And I think personally, from all the evidence I've seen, and I will make this case eventually, that um, almost every single person person who got on epstein's plane um was somehow recruited by the cia and being managed by epstein not in a nefarious way where it's like oh, i'll get sex compromise on you and make you do what i want i mean that they were knowingly involved with a cia operation um and epstein's the guy who manages loads of different people because he was so trusted at that point and that there's a big effort and a big push to make it look like he's not necessarily the cia and he's all Mossad where he worked with members of Mossad but he was linking people in to operations that were going on that were being headed up by the CIA and 
like Operation Condor, that ability to sometimes utilize uh, a member of that intelligence agency or that Five Eyes intelligence agency or that Israeli intelligence agency allows muddying of the water when your friends do the job and allows you not to get get uh, have accountability at home. I think Epstein was a CIA high-level recruiter, fixer, manager. He was running almost everybody and almost everybody noted down in his books uh, or in some way whether they know it or not uh being uh surreptitiously or not recruited by the cia or openly recruited or knowingly recruited and i'm being like yeah all right i'll, I'll do that and then you look at some of their actions afterwards and you go okay that makes sense what would the cia want to do um uh there's one guy who um flies on uh epstein's plane oh his name's gonna escape me now um he's in one of the epstein 101 series um and he flies on his plane and afterwards he tries to buy two media organizations including the la times fails and then goes to china and buys some chinese uh newspaper um and uh that seems like oh you'd want to look like you're really looking to get into that but then you go into a foreign country just like the cia would want to do you know you see you follow these people through and you start to realize oh their actions are in line with what the cia would want to do infiltrate here or infiltrate there after they've met with epstein and this happens on multiple occasions yeah i mean that that's a whole that's a whole rabbit hole of its own, right? All of the China stuff and everything, uh, everything related to that. So we're kind of coming up on time. Unfortunately, I've got a hard cap, like I said, so um, going to have to start, start rounding up, but this is super interesting. I know we could keep talking. There's definitely some themes that I wanted to revisit. Um, I'll go into in some more depth, but I think I'll have to wait for another conversation. Um, so yeah, Johnny, like this has been, been really awesome. It's been, been great chatting to you. You know, you're super knowledgeable about the, these topics and, you know, it's fascinating listening to all these ideas. And, you know, like I said before, thank you as well for just being so open with me at the beginning of the conversation about kind of your, your backstory and things like that. You know, it's a, uh, it's really appreciated to just, you know, um, that you were kind of really honest in, in sharing all of that, you know, especially having like never, never talked, never talked before, but I definitely feel like, uh, you know, I'm glad that you were able to kind of share that on the podcast. Um, so yeah, before we round off, just um, let my listeners know where they can where they can find you, where they can find uh, your work, your writing, you know, where they can get in touch with you and stuff, and then also just any kind of final um, parting thoughts you have as well for my audience. Yeah, cool. Well, uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for being so nice. Um, I uh, like to be like heart on sleeve, open book. Um, I I promised myself that when I went through hard times, I've I've got to be honest because out of it comes something else. It always comes something else. Uh, and I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to give people heartache or anything about my life. A lot of my life and my problems in the past, I've, I've resolved and got through myself and they've led me to here. But still, whenever you concentrate on the past, it still touches on an emotion and, and, you know, pulls a string here or there. Um, for me at the moment, I'm doing some really interesting stuff. So Newspace podcast, uh, is out, um, a weekly, mostly weekly. I've missed one or two and I've added an extra extra hero there um and that talks with some really interesting people i uh i uh, present a show called news pasty if you like funny stuff it's me just screaming at a screen really um news hound where for like for instance with the potting of pieces each one i went through all of the source material with the guys from the schism podcast and we go through 
all of the newspapers and stuff and you can watch those online that's on newshound and i i, I do police auditing so that's audit everything which is only all these things on my youtube or my rumble or my rockfin which are the bases if you want to support me i need your help so newspaste.com is my website and there you can find links to patreon and buy me a coffee and other basic ways to support me um i really need help i really need support i i'm not just saying that i'm like constantly trying i'm trying to uh, the the more support i get the more work i will put in and the more i will do that is as simple as it comes i'm so des I, you know i'm obsessed with a lot of this work and doing a lot of this work and i want to uh go past this um boundary the boundaries that everybody sets for themselves that includes being a really open person so i'm pretty easy to communicate with and to find ways to contact me especially on newspaste.com or johnnyvedmore.com um but if you uh want if you support me you'll have one-to-one communication with me and and uh, i'll do one-to-one videos with a lot of my new supporters and stuff and and talk with people because i want to get to know people and the future for me i'm doing some crazy stuff next year it's looking like it's a nine-part series it is Un unreal. I mean, unreal. Uh, you you think you know things, and then you keep looking underneath, and there's more, and there's more, and there's more. And now I've started working with some very clever folk who are not really like they don't want to be personalities out there, but they love researching. And um, uh, one person in particular uh, who's helped me out loads with information has done a really good job. Is we're going to go into a lot. There will be some stuff coming up that will blow people's minds um i i i um enjoy doing my work uh enjoy the work i do but there's a basic principle uh for one of the best ways to find the best stories look for the people that people make as heroes that are being made out to be heroes and then test out whether or not they're heroes and that leads you down all sorts of routes and coming up to election season in both america and britain expect a year of amazing articles coming from this way i promise you some really really special stuff so yeah that's from me thanks for thanks for having me bro thanks johnny